from Hong Kong. This is Mea Culpa, the Lessons Learned from Startups podcast. Based on the Postmodern Conference, where founders, investors, lawyers and mentors share their stories about working on, with or for startups. I'm Jeffrey Brewer and today we talk to Amit Chatterjee, CEO and founder of Shadow Factory, a B2B virtual, argumented and mixed reality production service company headquartered in Hong Kong. Before that, he was involved in multiple startups. Welcome, Amit. Hi, thanks for having me. Amit, tell me, how did you get involved in startups? Uh, I've been doing startups for as long as I can remember. Even when I was a, a young kid in school, I'd be trying to start clubs with my friends and like we try to do different activities and things together. I remember when I was uh, 13 or 14 years old, I had this idea in my head about starting a, a magazine that was at you know, centered around like video games and like youth culture and all that stuff. And, um, I tried to pitch it to my dad and I had this whole business plan that I wrote that was terrible. I think I wrote it literally on the back of a napkin and tried to pitch it to him. Um, and, uh, when I was in college, uh, there was a, uh, startup, uh, news magazine called Harvard Focus Europe. And, uh, I was, uh, one of their first, uh, staff members for the print and digital edition. So, um, that was one thing that like really um, kind of set me on my path towards startups because I knew that I always had an itch for it. I didn't really understand why, but I uh, knew that I was excited about being involved in startups. And uh, that's kind of how I got started. Your background, like what did you, uh, what was your major? Oh, so my background is uh, I actually went to university a lot earlier than most folks do. So I started when I was 12 years old and I graduated when I was 18 and I attended uh, Harvard and uh the uh, major I ended up with was political science, and I ended up minoring in uh, mathematics. Um, and uh, while I was hanging out, uh, taking some graduate courses, I also did some work in like, you know, animation, design, and I hung out with the computer science folks, and I just absorbed a lot of different information uh, from different different areas. Um, and by the time I was 18, 19, I was looking for a job. It turns out there's not a lot of jobs out there for 18-year-old poli-sci majors. So uh, I ended up uh, helping my parents retire to India and uh, moved back with them to help them settle down. And I started consulting on different types of projects. Uh, and that led me on my on my path. Yeah. You said you pitched your father uh, an idea based upon the uh, written on the napkin. Does entrepreneurship run in the family or...? Um. I think in a way, yes, the spirit of entrepreneurship runs in our family. Like um, my parents both uh, are from India. They they grew up, you know, in like the in the sixties, basically. And by the time the seventies had rolled around, they had had my brother, and they were on their way to the U.S. to start a life together. Uh, they didn't know anybody in America. They were literally just, you know, my dad tells the story. He had ten dollars in his pocket and just showed up in Boston. Uh, you know, with a one-year-old and uh, my mom. And so the two of them made a life for themselves uh, in the States and both excelled at what they did. My dad was an, a career academic and my mother was a career uh, computer scientist. So she was one of the first uh, database architects uh, uh, out of uh, out of Boston. And uh, she worked for people like um, the Federal Reserve, uh, the U.S. Air Force, uh, Fidelity. Uh, she's one of the people that was on the Y2K compliance uh, task force that were all around the world um, and all that. So she had a really stellar career as a database architect and designer. And uh, my dad had a long lasting impact as an educator uh, in, in Massachusetts. Yep. Do you still know what the idea was that was on that napkin? 
Oh yeah, totally. I remember it. It was literally about all the video games I like to play and all the TV shows that I like to watch and just doing like commentary on that stuff. And, uh, my, my disruptive idea was that instead of it being a print magazine, it was going to be on CD and I was going to print CDs and send them to people. So a very early stage version of Stitch? Something like that. Yep. Something like that. And what was... More like an early stage version of IGN. Okay. And what was the actual feedback that you got from your father in like trying to discourage you to do this? So So I had the idea and I was like, dad, this is what I want to do. And he was like, okay, if this is what you want to do... How are you going to do it? What do you need? And I was like, oh, no, it's going to be really easy. And I, I listed out, again, I was a teenager. I had no idea what I was doing or talking about. So uh, I just was like, well, what do I need? I probably need like a, a fax machine. So I started writing things down on the back of this napkin. Like I probably need like a fax machine, a computer, maybe a printer. Maybe I can get an all-in-one printer fax machine. And uh, yeah, and then like that'll be it. And then like photocopy everything in color. And uh, my dad was like looking at me and he started to laugh. And um, I think at the end of it, the real motivation was I was just trying to get my own phone line for my room. And uh, he was like, yeah, no, it's not happening. So I was like, okay. <laughs> and you needed that phone line to get internet or? For internet, phone calls, whatever, you know. Okay. Um, Things you do when you're 14, you know. <laughs> so at that point you moved to India. You, you did some projects? Yeah, so around 2002, 2003, I moved to India, and uh, I landed on this. Basically, the way I was occupying my time was I had a lot of friends who were back in the States who wanted to do things in India, and they needed help. So I was the guy on the ground for them, and I could uh, help them touch down and get started and launch what they needed to do. So a couple of them were like BPO-style tech companies. Uh, a couple of them were looking to connect with different types of, like, uh, merchants and um, and uh, for like cosmetics and like clothing materials things like that um, and then as I was hanging around I landed on this project where Centennial College from Canada was trying to launch a satellite animation campus in New Delhi um, and it needed to be a campus that was equivalent to something that would happen in Canada or their their facilities in Canada and uh, so through a a series of misadventures, which is for another podcast, another day. Uh, I, uh, I landed on that project and the program director, uh, who was there from, from, from Toronto, uh, took a liking to me and hired me as uh, part-time faculty and help. And we worked together to, uh, launch this facility. And, uh, it was quite a big deal. Like we got a lot of press in India. This is at the time when, you know, VFX and animation were having a massive boom in India. And, uh, a lot of different companies were setting up shop there. Other companies around the world were getting more comfortable sending their IP to India to have it worked on. And uh, uh, I was very lucky to be part of this team where we were doing really great work and training the students that would be the next generation of this industry in India. And uh, our first graduating class had 100% placement uh, throughout the industry in India. And then after we'd had that launch, those of us that were the part-time or contractors on the project, we started getting phone calls from other people that wanted to do similar projects or other training institutes that were starting to pop up and do similar similar things. And so I was doing that for a while. And as I was uh, on that circuit, I got a call from a studio in Bombay called Prana Studios. And at the time they were doing work for uh, Disney and DreamWorks and uh, NVIDIA. And uh, they needed some help with their technology operations and uh, I got recruited to come help them with that. And uh, yeah, that was also a series of adventures as well. So again, wherever I've been, I've been the 
person that gets brought in to help people do new things or to bring life back to things that uh, have been in disarray for a while. How did you end up in Hong Kong? Uh, so I did my, my work in India for a bit and then I ended up back in the U S ended up working for Scholastic for a while. Uh, I ended up, uh, running my own startup and animation for a while over there. And then, uh, after that shut down, it was, uh, 2012 and I was, uh, consulting again. That startup you said, and animation. Yep. What was the premise of that startup? So the premise was I had just come back from India having run an animation studio that was doing like world-class work for, you know, Disney and all these other companies. And I was like, well, if we can do it in India, we could probably do it in Boston. Um, and uh, so I had just come off of working with Scholastic and another um, advertising uh, startup called Interscope, later got acquired by Nielsen. Uh, and I just couldn't fight this urge that I had to come back to doing this kind of creative work. And so I got some friends together and we started this full service animation studio that was meant to cater to, you know, broadcast television and uh, doing corporate videos and stuff like that for different companies. And we're actually, you know, we had our various challenges, but we were doing okay. Um, I did a really bad job with uh, managing the, um, the fundraising and all that on that, uh, on that startup. And so the first few investors that came in got some pretty onerous, uh, um, terms with us and uh, they enforced them all right after the uh, recession. So whatever money we'd made immediately disappeared on us and we ended up having to shut down the company. But uh, up to that point, we ran the company for about two years and uh, it was pretty decent. You know, we had a team of about uh, 20 people. Uh, we were always had an office in downtown Boston. Uh, we worked with some interesting clients like, you know, Hennessy was one of our art, uh, Hennessy Artistry was one of our clients. Uh, the city of Boston was one of our clients. Um, and then we also worked with, uh, PayPal as well. And how come there were some uh, contracts there or like, like uh, term sheets probably, uh, that, uh, that gave those investors those, yeah, right. Did you, didn't you get like, um, legal advice or was oh, it just. Oh no, no. Cause I was uh 20 something and thought I knew everything. And, uh, so, and had this chip on my shoulder of getting an early start from a place like Harvard. And so, uh, you, you couldn't have thrown good advice at me. <laughs> uh, I, uh, and then I had worked at, you know, places like Scholastic and all these other companies. And I was like, oh, I really feel like I could do this better or imagine this structure better or whatever. And so I had all this baggage I was wearing as a first time entrepreneur that was like all the things I wanted to correct about previous working experiences. Now, I don't mean to say Scholastic's not a great company. Scholastic's an amazing company to work for. But again, in my in my mind, in my perspective, and the things that I wanted to do, I was like, oh, because I'm good at multitasking, an entire organization can be good at multitasking, and you don't need to have a separation between CTO, COO, and CFO. That could all be one role, and why would you want to break that up? And I only learned that the hard way as to why those were separate functions uh, through the process of managing my animation studio. Um, yeah. and, and what was the biggest lessons learned in terms of like a specific term in a condition in a term sheet or something else that you later on said that's uh, so not with the, with the fundraising on that one for the name of the studio is black screen studios uh with the fundraising on that one uh the first when i started i had no money i literally had like i think like a hundred dollars left to my name i just quit my job and i was trying to figure out what i was going to do and i really knew i knew that i really wanted to do this this uh the studio this animation studio but I needed cash for it. And uh, we just, I don't have any cash. We don't come from any money or anything like that. So I was like, okay, well, 
how do I do this? And I was talking to some people. I went to the usual places you go, family, friends, that kind of thing. And uh, I got introduced to somebody that was a close friend of the family and uh, was willing to throw down a little bit of cash. Uh, and as an angel investor, he had certain terms and things like that. And basically, I I knew that they weren't the ideal terms, but I also knew that if I didn't take a deal like that, I was never going to get started because I literally, pardon me, I literally had uh, had nothing to start with. Um, so I was like, okay, I'll take this deal and see what happens. And it got us started. We got running up and running, and that was great. But uh, the payout on that term sheet and the details of it basically entitled him to everything that we had accrued in the bank uh, two years later. Um, and so he called me up and was like, this is at the end of two years. And again, we were doing well. We were about cash flow positive and about to uh, take off. And uh, he was like, look, I know you're doing well and everything, but uh, all my other investments, again, this is the danger with angel investors is that if they're not super sophisticated investors, you know, they're throwing money at a lot, at a lot of different types of projects. And, you don't know how they perceive them or how they're managing their portfolio or what decisions they're making that keep them in the game or take them out of the game. Um, and so, you know, he called me up basically to say all of my other investments over the course of the recession have tanked and I need the money. And based on our deal, I'm entitled to what you have in the bank and I'm going to take it. And so I said to him, I was like, look, you know, if this is the case, we're the only ones making money, you should leave your cash in. And he's like, I understand what you're saying, but this is really just a courtesy call. And then he hung up, and uh, a few minutes later, the cash was out of the account. Uh, and so I couldn't – basically put us all the way back to day one, and I couldn't, I couldn't make that journey again that way. So uh, we, uh, we shut down the company and uh, moved on. Yeah. How was that for you personally? Like, like I can imagine that this was yeah, a hard business-wise, but this uh, is – for you something personal like something that you set up and an investor pulls the rug out under your uh you know i couldn't i couldn't blame the investor forever because there was also it was on me for decisions i'd made along the way like um you know i could i knew i knew a deadline like that was coming but again i was i was still really young and i i still thought i knew everything um and uh, it took this experience for me to understand that like there's certain things i can't control there's certain things i don't know and there's certain things you have to plan for. Like you have to plan for a rainy day where you might not have any money. You might not have any revenue. You can't just stay in like uh, super growth mode all the time, you know? Um, and so uh, afterwards I really, you know, I, I didn't spend a lot of time blaming other people. I very quickly came to the conclusion that I'd done this to myself. And uh, that was the hardest part to get through was once I understood that I'd done this to myself how to reconcile that and how to move forward and, and feel feel valuable again to to entrepreneurship or to whatever it is I want to try to do with my life. So and that took a little while. And in hindsight, would you have done exactly the same still or would you maybe like got a job and like try yeah, to get some savings? It's an interesting experience. I think uh, in hindsight I probably would have shut down the company earlier before I ran it to zero like that. It's kind of a chicken or the egg kind of thing. It's like I wouldn't be who I am today without that experience. Uh, was it an ideal experience? Not all of it was terrible. Some of it was really exciting. And like I learned a lot and I made some really good friends and uh, accomplished some really great work that I'm still very proud of. Um, so, you know, I can't just throw all of it away just because a, a portion of it was really difficult to deal with. I think 
you know, some of it's there for a reason. It's a learning lesson. And if you're, if you're the kind of person, especially entrepreneurs are like this, you're always striving for the next level. You just can't rest at right here or good enough. Uh, so if you're always striving for the next level and you're honest enough with yourself to hold yourself accountable, then these are just the stepping stones to where we're going, you know? Okay. Um, you close down the shop. We closed down that shop. I was depressed for a while. Uh, it took a little while for me to start answering the phone again. And then uh, by then in the U.S., the uh, stimulus money had hit and people were getting back to work and all that. So we're climbing out of the recession. Startups were getting funded. Uh, There's this whole innovation district being, uh, you know, uh, energized in the in downtown in the, in the seaport area. And uh, I was getting phone calls from people being like, hey, we remember you like. Because, you know, we were we were very loud during during the recession. Like, we were a very loud studio doing really big things and always punching above our weight. And uh, uh, people remembered that and remembered me from it. And so as soon as some of these people were getting their cash, they're like, we need a mitt to come help us get started and show us how to do this. And, like, we help us launch our startup. We help us rebuild this team that we had at this company. Um, you know, we need help brainstorming about how to execute this kind of stuff. We help us do that. Um, and that's kind of what I was in the middle of doing. And then, uh, about a year into that, uh, I got a call from, uh, Cantor Fitzgerald through their Cantor Ventures group. And they had a project called, uh, delivery.com, which was at the time, uh, you know, very prevalent in New York as a food delivery, uh, platform. And, uh, they're like, uh, we want to expand this. We're doing well in the U S but we want to go international. And, uh, we've got a guy on the ground in Hong Kong and, uh, uh, we'd love for you to go out there and work with him and help him get started. And so the complexity to the situation was Delivery.com in the U.S. is now an enterprise company, uh, and they're trying to launch a startup in another territory in Hong Kong, which is going to be resourced by Cantor Fitzgerald's office in Hong Kong. So it's a startup that you have to plug into a bank that you have to plug into an enterprise uh, e-commerce business. And so from the get-go, it's just very complicated on a bureaucratic level, on a business case level, and like how you're putting it together. So, and we were, we were really, uh, we had to be absolutely precise with everything we put forward. So we couldn't really do a lot of like loose documentation or like, you know, just be like, oh, we're going to shoot from the hip on this one and we'll just see where that goes. Like we're literally like, if we wanted to do something, we needed to sign off from 10 different people. Uh, and, uh, so it made us, it made us very good at organizing resources and being good at planning, uh, to move the execution forward. Um, and so I, I came out here to do that job and, uh, to Hong Kong and, uh, we launched that business and it later got acquired that, that division of it later got acquired by Food Panda. Yeah. That was, uh, about the first time that our paths crossed yep. here in Hong Kong. I still remember I visited that office and uh, it was, I think it was a Windows Lowe's office, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a beautiful office. It, it was a beautiful office. It, it was, was like, like, it was like a in spa. the center. Yeah, we were at the center. It's actually my first foray into Hong Kong. I didn't understand why everyone was always complaining about apartments being really small and offices being kind of, you know, dingy or whatever. I was like, really? Is this what people are complaining about? Because like, I arrived in Hong Kong. I was staying with my brother and he had lived, he was living in this really beautiful apartment that it was very spacious, uh, but he's in finance and I, I wasn't, I wasn't catching that flag that he's in finance and he was spending a lot of money on that apartment. And, uh, I was, uh, you know, first job was at the center and I was like, Oh, this is what offices are like in Hong Kong. This is great. 
you know. And so it wasn't until I left that job and went to another one, and now my brother has uh, moved away and I'm living in my own apartment, and I realized, like, oh, okay, this is what people are talking about. <laughs> that was indeed around the time that food delivery uh, companies were starting up and, and, and failing and starting up again here, here in Hong Kong. You had uh, Deliveroo, you had Food Panda, you had... Um, There's Cuisine Courier, Cuisine Courier, Coziness was another one. Um, Delivery.com, of course. Delivery.com, and then... Um, what was the other one? I can't remember, but there was one that we used to compete with all the time that was really funny. It'll come back to me. But anyway, yeah, I mean, that was a very exciting time. Um, I actually, with everything that's going on these days with the virus and everything, and people are very dependent on food delivery now, in a very selfish way, I feel kind of responsible for saving the city because, like, the work we did at Delivery.com is kind of what rallied that whole industry here. And a lot of the uh, process and, you know, infrastructure that we set up is still what's driving a lot of the way food delivery happens here. So I was ordering my food the other night and I was feeling like, you know what? I really did something here. <laughs> I really had impact. Um, but uh, I'm overstating my value a lot when I say that. Um, but yeah, no, we uh, we started delivery.com. Uh, we got it up and running. We were one of the first aggregators like us. And then uh, Food Panda wanted to... Uh, give us a run for our money. So they started marketing very hard and pushing their, their platform really hard. And then uh, Deliveroo saw what we were doing and they came to town. Uh, Food Panda tried to buy them out and then couldn't. And they ended up creating creating uh, Foodora to compete with them. And then somebody at uh, at Rocket Internet, was, which is the investor behind Food Panda, was like, uh, these are basically the same business. Let's, let's slam them back together. So uh, Food Panda got a little bit bigger and they kept acquiring. Um, uh, different uh, different aggregators and different delivery companies. The challenge for the business here in Hong Kong is that none of the merchants do delivery themselves. And so, you know, in a place like North America where we're used to delivery and people have, you know, the culture of delivery that they're, they grow up with, like all of my friends, as soon as they got their license and had their first car, the first thing they did was go get a job delivering pizza for somebody because it's a quick way to make cash over the summer and it's a good job that keeps you driving and all that stuff. So, you know, we grow up that way and like most local restaurants in the U.S. Uh, deliver um, or have some capacity to deliver. Uh, in Hong Kong, that wasn't the case. So the aggregators whose business generally was demand generation and like, you know, bringing users to the door and bringing merchants to the door and facilitating the transaction, they then suddenly found themselves uh, having to do the delivery themselves as well, which creates a whole other dynamic to it. And that's harder to scale because... Instead of there being 100 deliveries managed from 100 different points, you have 100 deliveries managed from one point, one dispatch. And that's very hard. And so it makes it very difficult for uh, that business to move in a certain way. Uh, so one of the things that we ended up having to do was start a separate logistics business to keep it separated from the e-commerce aggregation thing that we were doing. So we started this business called Runner. And uh, that was a you know, fledgling startup. And we had basically services that we were running for delivery.com and for other people that wanted to do uh, delivery as well. And uh, that was going very well. It's just that the uh, those of us that were the founders of the company, we could see the opportunity, but none of us had the time to leave our jobs to go run it as a startup. So that ended up not going anywhere. But the logistics component was very key. 
and uh, that's what drove that uh, that whole market. Yep. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like you had the local local restaurants, like the the, the mom and pop shops. They, as my experience is, they usually delivered also, uh, but then with their own staff. Yeah, that was the little like the guys that going around during lunchtime with the bags of of the the little plastic bags and then going to offices. Um, how hard was it to yeah onboard those kind of restaurants? To say like, hey, like there will be if if somebody orders through our platform, there will be a guy coming to your restaurant to pick it up and then deliver it to the end customer. Uh, every restaurant we talked to loved that idea. They didn't want to do the delivery themselves. So if it was provided to them and it wasn't a a cost they had to maintain in terms of like hiring somebody full time, they absolutely loved that idea. So that was that was very easy. The beginning part that was hard was we were trying to in the beginning, convince the merchants to do the delivery themselves, which uh, that that took some work. So like, you know, most of the merchants wouldn't want to do it unless it was an order of a certain size and they had a certain amount of advance warning. And uh, that, when we tried that in the beginning to do that, so like a minimum order size was rather high and then the uh, order had to be placed, you know, at least, you know, half a day in advance, if not a full day in advance. And... What we found was it was very hard for people to order because people aren't hungry a day early. You know, they're hungry now and they want the food now. So uh, we were missing out on a lot of orders. So again, to meet that that point or that threshold of we're actually capturing the demand, we had to somehow figure out how to get the deliveries done. Those kind of things are still going on. Actually, um, uh, just before this podcast, we were downstairs at a, at a coffee shop that also sells bagels and food and that kind of thing. And, um, and excellent donuts. Uh, excellent donuts. Uh, J Coffee, by the way, in, uh, in, in Wan Chai. Uh, but what you saw there was, while I was sitting there waiting, um, that coffee shop sells food and serves food, but there were people coming in, delivering for from local restaurants for their actual staff of the coffee shop so there were delivering people coming in delivering the lunch at that point for the local staff of the coffee shop because it's cheaper for the staff to get the lunch from a local um, uh, restaurant than uh, paying from their own salary for the lunch Sure. Made by the restaurant they're actually working in. Sure. Um, and that's why those local restaurants uh, destroy everybody else that is out here because, uh, you know, I actually used to observe this all the time on um, in Central. There'd be a string of uh, local restaurants mixed in with uh, some of the international guys that were coming in trying to touch down and compete with them. And the local guys always destroyed them because, you know, there was a price point there. There was a familiarity in the type of cuisine there. And it was food you could order. It's the same every day, no matter when you get it. And so it was a very repeatable, very easy to do kind of thing. And uh, again, the price point was unbeatable. So uh, they would have the volume. And literally, my friend's shop would be, you know, maybe 10 customers at a time. And the shop next to him that was the local place would have a line out the door around the corner, a couple blocks. So, um, you know, even if there was a... You know, you could say on a per unit basis, he was making more money. On a volume basis, he was way behind them. Uh, and that's why a lot of restaurants, I think, struggle out here in Hong Kong is that, you know, you have to figure out the localization aspect of it quickly. Uh, part of that's a language issue. And then part of that's a 
a uh, you know just kind of actually understanding what it is people want issue. So yeah, just to put things in perspective for the listeners, at one point I had a an intern uh, working at my company, and I as an exit interview. Uh, I was asking like, hey, like, can you name anything that you would try to see differently? And uh, and we weren't, I didn't have my office in a very upscale uh, part of town. And then that intern said like, yeah, if I really have to mention something is that when I go out here for lunch, there's like no lunch places less than like 60 Hong Kong dollars. And that's in US dollars, like seven, eight US dollars. They are used to even paying less than that for for their lunch so that's just to put things in perspective that like yeah going somewhere to pay like less than six five six us dollars is the standard for local people for their lunch exactly exactly so uh, delivery.com uh, here at at least the the, mm-hmm. the, uh, the Hong Kong part yeah. uh, uh, called acquired mm-hmm. uh, what's next for you so I left there and ended up um, starting a uh, consulting company. And the first client we took on board was uh, an e-commerce wine company uh, that was, at the time, somewhat in distress. Uh, part of the issue was uh, there were – it was like a, it was almost like a spy novel. There, there were executive management there that were stealing from the company and things like that. And um, operationally, it had – grown beyond the actual business it was doing so it was very bloated and um and they were highly in debt to uh, a lot of their vendors and distributors so um uh we went in and by we i mean by then i had some some friends i'd met so they were my co-founders in this consulting business and uh we went in and we helped them uh, reshape the company and you know resize it or you know right size it and then um we got rid of some of the negative elements, people that were doing dam- actively doing damage to the company, things like that. And uh, we also did a digital transformation for them where you know, we managed to get all their, their stock in a warehouse into another third-party provider that had basically uh, cloud services that you could manage the inventory from. And they also did deliveries. So all of a sudden, we turned this semi-brick-and-mortar e-commerce wine shop into a fully cloud-based operation and uh and managed to get them back up and running and then set them back out to uh to uh to do what they needed to do. Uh so that was a a great victory for us that way. Uh I learned a lot about the social dynamics of uh companies that have those kinds of problems. You know, like, you know, people that feel that they've been there for a while and that they're they're owed something or entitled to something, uh people that feel like they can just take whatever they need to take, uh people who are um, trying to do what they can do and just trying to survive and they're just used to being taken advantage of and just kind of get used to turning a blind eye to being taken advantage of and all that stuff and uh, and also the effects of uh, you know how you know cash flow issues can affect the team and team morale and you know some things you don't get back you know like when certain people hit a certain threshold of like they feel that they've been uh, messed around with too much uh, you never get that person back on an ideological basis. And so kind of getting to see that all up close and personal was uh, quite an education. But by now you're quite detached or far away from everything, gaming, uh, far away from virtualization. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and then something else came so on your path, what, right? What happened was uh, I was interviewing for a job with a a, a big uh, broadcaster, let's say, and they were looking for a head of digital. And uh, I made it through all the rounds of interviews, and I was one of several hundred candidates that they were looking at, and uh, I came made it down to the last two. It was me and one other person. And uh, during the whole time I was interviewing for this job, uh, my whole sporadic uh, and you know very diverse background made sense. Like I felt like everything I had done had had purpose and was in a straight line, and like added up to what this job was going to be. And then I didn't get the job, and I was like, oh, what does that mean? And so I sat and I thought about it for a while, and I was like, well, if that's the kind of work I want to be doing, um, I need to start doing that kind of work. And that was really it. it was, as simple as that sounds, it, it, I had to actually understand that this, that's what I needed to do. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm going to cut out everything that's not that kind of work. And so at the time, we'd been doing some consulting work with – uh, listed companies in Hong Kong and helping them do like digital transformation and fundraising and things like that. And I was like, nope, this is not the work I want to be doing. I want to be doing specifically creative and tech work, like new stuff that nobody's done before, working with a really creative team and pushing the boundaries of where we can go with all these things, not just on an entertainment basis, but also for productivity and for everything. And so um, I dropped everything um found some investors and started this company called shadow factory and uh the focus was vr because uh i'd been playing around with it in the background and was already inspired by it and wanted to learn more about it and and try it out and uh i'd been to a uh a conference in uh in bali where all the senior media professionals go it's it's run by uh media partners asia it's called apos and uh, they had a big track on VR that year. And everybody was saying the same thing. They were like, oh, we love VR, but we don't really understand it. We like VR. It's an interesting tool or concept, but we're not sure how it's going to work. And I was really surprised by that because for me, it was kind of obvious how it could work. And I was surprised that other people hadn't caught on to it. And I remember walking around the conference talking to people. And I talked to some of the guys that – and these are all names you would rec recognize. So, like, you know, we're talking like – the likes of Fox or Discovery or, you know, Vice or, you know, uh, MTV or any of those guys, right? And I remember walking around and, like, asking them, like, why are you struggling with VR? Like, what is the, the challenge for you? And uh, what became apparent to me was that VR and its execution requires expertise in three main areas. One is creative, one is tech, and then one is, you know, the solutions aspect of it. Um, so on the creative side, you need to be very good at the kind of creative that you would do for storytelling in like television or film. You also need to be very good at the kind of creative you would do for video games. Um, and that's already several separate disciplines. Uh, on the tech side, you need to be very good at IT systems, uh, different devices. So desktop, console, tablet, video game consoles, um, and then also you need to be good at like cloud and cloud security. We had one client where we launched a project for them and it was super high profile and the press were on the way. And because it was so high profile and they'd been advertising it, some hackers decided to see if they could stop the event. And uh, they had a denial of service attack, which would have shut down the entire event because it was all going to run off of this one service uh, that they were depending on. And uh, 
not only did we have to provide the AR VR component of the event, we had to jump in at the last minute and provide the cybersecurity and patch up the server and get them back up and running. And we had them back, back up and running a half an hour before the press arrives. Um, and so, you know, you need to be able to have the ability to service all of these different areas all in one go. And then the solutions part is the most crucial. How do you solution this to a company? How do you actually derive value from this? How is this actually going to be used by the end customer? And what do we really need to build here? Um, so all three of those things you need to be able to do at once in the process of executing high quality VR and AR uh, solutions. And what I realized walking around this conference was those are all separate disciplines. And usually people are work, used to working in silos. Like I'm the content guy, I stick to content. I'm the tech guy, I stick to tech. You know, I'm the uh, solutions guy, so I'm just going to manage the vendors. I don't actually have any expertise in-house. Uh, and so I realized like that approach is going to make it very difficult for people to operate and adopt these technologies. Uh, and that we had, just by nature of my background and the kind of work we'd been doing, we had a real shot at uh, helping these people with this stuff. And so I came back from the conference, we dropped everything, and we started Shadow Factory. That was easy, right? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> took two seconds. You know, we're a unicorn now. No, no. Uh, it was uh, it was very difficult. Um, one, nobody knew what VR was. You know, we were still trying to educate people on it. Like people had heard about it, but they hadn't even put on a headset. They hadn't really seen any experiences, and they didn't really know what the technology could do. And to be honest, we didn't really know what the technology could do. We knew what we could do with it, but we didn't really know what the boundaries were there. You know, and uh, what we we're going to run into. Um, so, you know, within, you know, a good six months or so, we'd managed to get, get up and running and get started. Um, how long between starting and first revenue? Because this is like VR is like a yeah. lot of things. So if you can call, development. if you can call our first project revenue, uh, cause it was a very, very low price point, but, uh, uh, I think it took us like, I'm talking about revenue, not profit. Yeah, 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 yeah. So even then I'm not sure it counts. Um, I think we probably were like nine, ten months in before we actually got saw any money. When was the point that you, because it's always very insecure, right? Um, you're doing something like this. What was the point that you thought with yourself, like, this is it. Uh, this is going to be uh, the thing that I'm going to work on the next 10, 15 years. And how much did you give yourself from the start until that point uh, uh, up front like usually when you start something you say like, I will give this six months I'll give this 18 months I'll give this three years and if I'm so, not at that milestone then at that point I'll stop like like what so what really, were your KPIs there I don't really uh, approach entrepreneurship that way um, I don't know if you ever saw that movie Gattaca uh, there's a the movie Gattaca there's a, a scene where these uh, these two brothers have this competition there's a lot more to the movie but the particular scene I'm referring to is the, there's these two brothers that have this competition to see who can swim the farthest before turning back. And, um, you know, the older brother always wins. It's always been that way since they were kids. And the younger brother's always like, ah, I can never beat him. And then finally, like, you know, the, the middle of this movie, they've met, a, yep, they met up again after many years of being estranged. And, um, you know, obviously there's some uh, tension between them. I'm trying not to spoil the movie, but, uh, you know, in order to settle it, they decide to go for the swim again and, and, and compete. And they, they keep swimming and they keep swimming and like they keep swimming 
And the older brother's like, hey, you know, we've gone pretty far. You know, you probably want to turn back now. And he's like, no, no, I'm going to keep going. And um, and uh, they end up swimming and swimming and swimming. And the older brother eventually, like, almost, like, collapses. Like, he starts to sink and... Oh. That's okay. Uh, he starts to sink and uh, almost drown. And then uh, the younger brother grabs him, saves him, brings him back to the shore. And the older brother's like, totally like, he's like, this should be impossible. Like, how did you do that? And the younger brother's like, I never left anything for the way back. And uh, the way that I do startups is like that. Like, if you're aiming at like a milestone of like, okay, well, in three months, I'm going to be done or not. Probably you're going to end up being done. Um, and, uh, you know, you, you'll create circumstances for it to be finished. Because the thing is, especially with something like VR where it's like such a cutting edge industry and there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of things you're going to have to wait out. It's, there's always going to be a reason to stop and uh, shut down the company. So for me, it was like, uh, I was really inspired that one, we built a really great world-class team and two, we were doing excellent work. And so, or we are doing excellent work. So whatever our challenges have been over the years, we're coming up on our fourth year now, this May is our fourth anniversary um, whatever our challenges have been, uh, I'm really proud of what we've done and the team that we have together. And, uh, I can't turn back, you know, this is, this is where I'm going to go one way or the other. Um, yeah. smooth sailing so far or, Oh, no way. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, what, what can I say? Like, you know, there's, there's really good days and there's really bad days. I talk about this at some of the, uh, startup mentoring that we do, you know, on, a on a good day for a startup, it's really easy to be happy. There's no problems. It's great. Uh, on the bad days, you feel like total garbage. Like, you know, you're sitting there, all your personal demons are are right beside you, and they're just being like, yeah, of course you're stupid. Of course you can't do this. What were you thinking? This is an awful idea. Um, so the, the bad days are really tough, and you have to keep in mind what it is you're trying to do. Uh, hopefully you've got great people around you that can – uh, that can help you just kind of process it and people you can vent to. Hopefully you've got, you know, healthy outlets uh, to channel that energy into. Um, whenever I have like a, a really, really bad day or week or something like that, I, you know, I actually try to make it to like a jujitsu class and just kind of let it all out and all that. Um, uh, I smoke a lot of cigars, so that's one way of getting them out too. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it hasn't been totally smooth sailing. Um but our opportunity is still there and the team's still together and we're still doing the best work we've ever done. So. Um, can you talk a little bit about like the, the challenges that you um, have like in the last uh, period also, uh, especially the last few months with, with, with the COVID. Sure. Um, sure. So um, last year we were having some issues because um we were chasing some funding that didn't come through. And at the time we were in super growth mode. And so that created some cash flow issues for us, which was challenging. Uh, and then the protest started. So as the protest started, our ability to forecast any kind of recovery plan or, um, you know, drive opportunities that could help us with the recovery, uh, everything just got murkier and murkier and harder to, uh, to manage. So, uh, we went through a lot of difficulty trying to understand like, how do we get through to the next day? What does our tomorrow look like? And so in the process of that, we've had to do a few things. We had to 
you know, look at the team differently, look at the kind of work that we were chasing differently, who was on the team, that kind of stuff. Um, and now we've totally transformed the company into a very different thing from what it was last year um, in terms of we're much leaner, but also we're much more automated. Um, you know, we're, we're doing the same kind of projects. It's just taking a longer time to close them because with the protests and now the virus, it's very hard to get a hold of clients. It's very hard to get them to um, commit to the projects that we need them to commit to and to, uh, you know, kind of get things over the line. So there's still a lot of interest in what we're doing and all that. And there's still an industry for us. It's just everything slowed down and access to everything is, is much harder. So we've had to become double and triple as aggressive uh, to chase it down and get over there. Um, the other thing to say about what, the flip side of it has been is that with the virus and everybody having to stay home, uh, the demand for VR and immersive technology has shot through the roof. Like we're getting four or five leads a week now, people calling us trying to get help with, hey, can you help us do this in VR? We can't do it in person anymore. Uh, and that goes from the range of like things in education to uh, to corporate productivity. So like meetings, conferences, that sort of thing, all the way to massive large-scale vr events or something like a music concert or something like that you know trade shows yeah and uh so far any regrets uh i think there's always regrets um i'm, I'm not going to talk about them today <laughs> maybe yes. for another yeah uh, for another podcast, podcast. okay yeah, yeah. um quite often uh, um, uh, you get advice as a, i will say i don't regret sticking with it okay um, quite often, uh, as an uh, as an entrepreneur, as a founder, uh, you, you you get advice from other people. Uh, what is a piece of advice that often goes around, or or you got that you don't agree with? So, I I really feel that there's this whole paradigm of startup culture that's influenced by investors that are looking to replicate the Facebook thing, and I say that quote unquote the Facebook thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of investors that we've spoken to since we started, uh, who were just like, you know, not, you know, purposely not understanding our business model or like what we're trying to do. Like our business model is we want to make money and I'm not going to raise cash or ask anyone for cash that I don't think I can reasonably pay back the revenues in a reasonable amount of time. Um, every investor we talked to the first year thought that that was a bad idea. They're like, well, you shouldn't be making revenue right now. You should be working on customer acquisition and like building your ecosystem. I'm like, well, in the beginning, we were a services company. We didn't have any products like that. And we we're still trying to build out the marketplace and still trying to understand things. So the concept of what you're trying to apply to us doesn't apply to us. We're in a different model. And you guys, if you want to take advantage of these opportunities, need to figure out a different model to look at. And so that was something that I had to figure out quickly was like, we need to be approaching this differently than we're being advised to. Because if I'd followed any of that advice in the, in the first place, we wouldn't have made it past the first year. We would have taken big swings at things like, you know, making, making a game and hoping that it would be a hit in VR. And there's just no way that would have worked. The economics are not there for it. Uh, we could have taken big swings at like building a platform, but with no market validation Every company that's been VR funded company that's tried to do that has failed. Um, the thing that we do that's different from the other ones is that 
because we were mostly bootstrapped from the beginning and the only reason we're still here is because clients pay us money to do stuff. That means we get the market validation up front and then we start building. So we're building stuff that people actually need and we're building it so they can actually use it. Uh, that's the biggest difference in our approach versus some of the other guys that are out there. Some of the other guys that are out there are like, oh, well, we built this thing in VR. Now you go use it. And the client will pick it up and be like, well, we don't really understand how this works anyway. I don't know how to use this. Um, so that idea of stay away from revenue or, you know, try to be more like Facebook is something that uh, I think just it just doesn't apply to us. And uh, I think, you know, we had to come up with our own game plan and our own playbook uh, as a necessity of that. And what's the most valuable advice that you, uh, that's ever given to you? Um, I remember, uh, you know, there's there's days when you're you're really not sure what's going on, and everything seems like it's upside down. And a good friend of mine told me once, like, you know, when that happens, you need to sit down, empty your mind, and ask yourself some questions, some soul searching questions about what it is you're doing and who you want to be. And don't be afraid of the answers. And, uh, you know, particularly over the last years, we've had our various challenges. I've had a few of those moments where I've had to sit down and ask myself, you know, who am I going to be and what am I doing? Um, and it is kind of scary um, to sit there and not know what the answer is going to be. But, you know, once you come around to it, the amount of confidence you feel and the amount of resolve that you feel around it is uh, really, you know, very empowering. And what's something that, It's not a secret, but not a lot of people know about you. Uh, I have a black belt in Shotokan Karate. A black belt. All right. It's a long time ago. It's a long time ago. If there's one thing you want people to take away from this talk that we just had, this this podcast, what is it? I think, um, you know, entrepreneurship is not for the faint of heart. And, uh, you know, if you meet me in person or if I do uh, startup mentoring, I'll say the same thing. Like, you know, if you think this is a cool thing to do and it's really easy and like you're going to make money and you can already see the IPO, uh, that's not what this is about. This is about really testing yourself and really test the world testing you about what it is that you want to do and who you want to be. The only reason you should be in this game is if you can't sleep at night because you can't do this thing or this thing's not real in the world yet. I need to do this kind of work. I need to be involved in like really creative, really technical projects. I need to work with really smart, really creative people. This job that I've built for myself is my dream job and I can't breathe without it. Um, and I would encourage you if you've got something like that in your life where like you just can't live without it, then yeah, th this is for you. Uh, I want to thank you for your valuable insights and uh, sharing your uh, uh, lessons learned in startups. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, for the listeners, um, although the rating system of podcast is hideous, uh, if you like this May Cooper series, you can rate this podcast with five stars as a motivation for the makers. This is Jeffrey Brewer. Normally, I would say go out and build something meaningful. But in these days, uh, I say stay inside and still build something meaningful. Thank you. <laughs>